Uh, I'm Eric Rasmussen, and um, I actually won't be talking about what I've got up here first, but I thought I would help Jeff out with his project generally um, by talking about some of my, my other research. Um, I actually also have to thank him and Cato for allowing me to change my topic. Originally, it was going to be litigation costs. Then my co-author and I switched to Chrysler. Then finally, GM, which I think you will find the most interesting, even more interesting than concavifying the quasi-concave. But I present this for three reasons. Um, one is uh, to um, show how smart I am, because my GM paper has no equations in it. This is a paper I wrote with a math professor, um, Chris Connell. And um, it's got really neat pictures in it, uh, with three dimensions even. And we get to have unbounded variation, which uh, Michaeli will, will understand if nobody, nobody else. Um, and that's why uh, Cato is having this, uh, this kind of book, I guess. Um, I actually met Chris in church, and he's a geometer. And I told him of this idea I had. And my pastor was asking me to party last Sunday. Well, that's an interesting idea. What is it good for? And it was really hard to explain, but it's a really neat idea. If Cato didn't solicit us to write things like why you're all losing billions from the GM bailout, then I'd keep writing fun stuff like this maybe, and perhaps it wouldn't be as socially useful. So this, Cato, is, is what you're saving us all from. And Boldrin and Levine, uh, a fortiori, uh, those great minds be, would be at work in differential geometry if you didn't put them onto patent stuff instead. OK, so um, question today, though, is uh, can the Treasury exempt its own companies from uh, the tax laws? Uh, I actually had a handout, which I don't know if any of you have gotten. Is anybody, could you raise your hand if you've gotten the handout? The paper was emailed, but there's a one-page version which has everything on it if you're just smart enough to read between the lines. Could you raise your hand if you've gotten the handout? OK, could somebody go and get the handouts and, and pass them around um, to everybody, please? Um, we start off with a wonderful Latin phrase, uh, dona clandestina sunt semper suspiciosa. Uh, hidden gifts are always suspicious. And one theme of this paper is that we have a special danger from tax law in terms of rent seeking, because it's so difficult to see what is a legitimate tax break and what is not. And General Motors is our big example. Uh, back in 2009, um, General Motors um, was going bust. I guess you could say it had gone bust. Uh, for several months, the federal government and the Canadian government had been pouring in money to try to stave things off, but they, they couldn't continue. Uh, and General Motors um, owed $21 billion to the United Auto Workers Trust for health care benefits and things, $27 billion to bondholders, and there's a lot of trade debt and warranties, too. Um, the warranties being that you, if somebody's bought a car, then you've promised to repair, so that's a liability. But ahead of them in line and way ahead of the stockholders, who were in hopeless shape, was the U.S. Treasury, which had TARP loans and other loans, and the Canadian government, which also had secured claims, and even $6 billion or so in private secured claims. These were loans made afterwards, which the bondholders and others had allowed because they knew, they thought, I guess at the time, this would help them get back their, their uh, bond principle, uh, wrongly, probably, as it turned out. Um, so uh, GM went into bankruptcy court into Chapter 11. 
And uh, it looked as if they'd never come out of chapter 11, actually. Chapter 11 is if things can be worked out with the creditors, um, otherwise you go into liquidation. But while in chapter 11, um, they did what's called a 363 sale or purchase, uh, where most of the assets of GM were sold to a new company called the new GM. So they distinguished between old GM and new GM. They would both coexist for a couple of years. The new GM was mostly owned by the US government, with substantial holdings by the Canadian government and by the United Auto Workers Trust. Um, the uh, private secured creditors, as part of this deal, would be paid off in full by the new GM. And the new GM would also assume a lot of the liabilities, in particular, those warranties that were important for keeping the business going. And uh, there are a few other provisions here and there. Uh, crucially, the bondholders were left with the junky assets they didn't want in the new GM, but were still worth something and would be liquidated. And 10% of the stock in the new GM and some warrants in the new GM. Um, so that was the, the deal. And if you look at it, um, it wasn't that bad a deal, it seemed, um, uh, for um, the bankruptcy judge to arrange. If you took the situation as it stood in June 2009, which was a pretty bad situation. Uh, a year later, the new GM had stock worth $54 billion. And uh, some securities, bonds and things worth and, and uh, borrowing of $13 billion. So that was about $67 billion. Uh, worth of, of assets, market value. And that's about the same amount as was paid, um, in where um, I should say the, the, um, the sale was made in exchange for the US government's and the Canadian government's um, uh, debt. When a company is in bankruptcy, you don't have to pay cash for something. You can uh, use, um, what do they call it? Uh, credit bidding, I think. You can pledge the stuff that's owed to you anyway. It's kind of paid to yourself. Now, to be sure, the US government had been pretty foolish to loan out that $50 billion or so beforehand in early 2009. But by June 2009, that mistake had been made. So uh, it wasn't um, such a bad deal to, to use that to, to bid for the new GM. But the theme of this paper is that something that um, was another benefit the US government gave to the new company was that by not letting GM go bankrupt, it preserved its net operating losses. Uh, ordinarily, a company like a person, uh, if it has um, losses instead of income for some years, can and can't use those to offset income for tax purposes, can carry that forward to set against future income for tax purposes, for the corporate income tax. However, of course, if you go bankrupt, then that all disappears. Uh, if GM had gone bankrupt, then that $45 billion overhang in operating losses would just have vanished. And since it didn't vanish, that means the US Treasury will pay something in the order of $18 billion. Or sorry, well, the US Treasury will get something in the order of $18 billion less taxes. That is a crude estimate of setting $45 million of deductions against future income and then applying the corporate income tax rate. So lesson one here is a hidden cost of having a bailout, 
perhaps not a real cost to the economy, but a cost to the government, is that by not letting the company go bankrupt, you permit its operating losses to go forward and reduce your future uh, tax collections. Okay, um, that applies no matter what, even if you do everything uh, legally. Um, similar things have happened with two other companies. There are two other big companies that the U.S. government has acquired. Oh, four, really. Uh, there's also Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but they are not interesting for tax purposes because they will never turn a profit, so their net operating losses won't, won't ever matter. Or, you know, not for the next 20 years. I think after that, you, you can't keep using it up. Citigroup, though, and AIG do have some chance of turning a profit again. Citigroup may have this year even. That's something I should, I should take a look at again. Um, in uh, the same uh, month, actually in 2009, Citigroup and Treasury agreed to exchange the government's preferred stock, which had gotten for TARP money, uh, for common stock. So the government got uh, an ownership stake. Later that year, Citigroup uh, issued some new common stock. Well, this meant that Citigroup had had over a 50% ownership change. And as I'll explain shortly, that triggers a provision which means you lose your net operating losses, or lose much of them for tax purposes. Also, uh, Treasury has sold its shares since then, and that's another big ownership change. Citigroup has $38 billion in net operating losses. So here, too, are some costs to the U.S. Treasury of bailing out a company. The third company is AIG, and I guess it's the, the biggest, maybe. Um, AIG uh, is 92%, was 92% owned at the peak by the U.S. government. Um, and it had carry forwards of $32 billion in net operating losses and lots of capital losses and other goodies it could carry forward. Uh, AIG is actually further than GM or Citigroup from making profits, but it might someday too. So anyway, these are the big three as far as the U.S. Treasury um, having a hidden cost of bailouts in terms of not being able to collect taxes in the future than it would otherwise. Okay, back to GM. GM is um, one of the most complicated of these and the one we focus on, partly because each of these gives you enough of a headache, it's hard to learn the tax law of more than one company at a time. And we thought GM, well, GM is the most interesting from a political economy point of view, and at least it's not financial, so it's somewhat less complicated than the others. But we think we've got a handle on it. Um, there are two things to look at. First of all, um, the financial press has talked about the tax break that's been given to GM. And this is a little bit misunderstood. It isn't quite as bad as it may look at first glance. Because you might think that the government, having purchased these assets out of bankruptcy, wouldn't get to purchase the net operating losses with it. Because ordinarily, if you buy the assets of a bankrupt company, you don't get any sort of tax benefits. Those are in personam, not in, in rem. They are not attached to the thing, but to the, the person, the corporate person or whatever. But there is a special exception for a company in bankruptcy that is purchased by the senior creditors, where that is treated as a reorganization. Um, you will notice on the handout that I have some questions at the end that people in the audience might be able to help us with. The first one we've answered, I just don't like the answer, so I'm hoping you'll tell me where I'm wrong. 
Uh, when I started this, I thought that, aha, this is not a real reorganization. It's an asset sale. So even at that point, the tax operating losses should have disappeared. And that's what the financial press often says. But my co-author, who's written uh, the leading or a leading textbook on um, corporations, says, no, Eric, you're wrong. You have to look carefully what reorganization means. And this actually is a legitimate reorganization, a non-taxable event. OK, so it probably is. But the problem then comes to this uh, section 382. Let's see if I can put my cursor on it. Um, that your net operating losses are cut back heavily whenever half of the firm's equity changes ownership. Um, now, the, what I just said about bankruptcy is, if it's in bankruptcy, it doesn't matter. But if it's out of bankruptcy, then a fifth percent change does matter. Thus, Citigroup and AIG, not ever being in bankruptcy, believe it or not, um, uh, don't get this exception. And if the US government sells 50% ownership in GM, or indeed, if it sells 40% and the old GM people sell 10%, so you've got a 50% ownership change, then you've, you've triggered an event where GM suddenly loses those $45 billion in net operating losses. Uh, you've all heard probably about the IPO last fall by the US government. It sold some of its GM stock, about half of it, but it didn't tip over the 50% limit then. Uh, it has leaked uh, rumors that it will tip over and sell all of its GM stock uh, this fall sometime. Um, so we're waiting for that to say that really something utterly illegal was done, but it looks like it'll happen. Um, let's see, what was I going to say uh, next here? Oh, yes. So um, this is a problem for the government because they do want to sell GM stock. Uh, I should say a little bit about the background, though, to this three, section 382 of the tax code. And this leads to another of my questions for the audience, one for the economists this time, which is uh, this is an old sort of a rule in its current form only dating to 86, but going back to 1954, really before that. And the idea is that the Congress decided it didn't like it that some company which is earning a profit would buy a company that's earning losses just to get their net operating losses to set against their profits so they pay less corporate income tax. And so this 50% rule about acquiring 50% was designed to stop that, to stop trafficking in tax losses. Um, and uh, going further, um, you might even imagine a world in which you wouldn't have to buy the whole other company. Just if uh, GM was losing money, they could sell their tax losses, sell their deductions to Microsoft, even without selling the entire company the assets, just selling the tax losses. We could make tax losses a tradable item. But that's not the case. Question for the economists, why not? It's actually not clear why uh, trafficking in tax losses is a bad thing. Uh, the, the, on the one hand, on the other hand, things there are, well, we don't want transactions occurring just because um, one company wants to buy another for tax purposes. But on the other hand, having this 50% rule means that a profitable company might decide not to buy an unprofitable company, even though it would be good economics and value increasing, because it would use up the tax advantages. So it's kind of ambiguous, and I am looking for any economist who has ever, in the history of the world, written on this subject. 
Uh, public finance people may even have heard of this law. I don't know. It's really big in tax law. Uh, people who get LLMs in tax probably spend half their life learning, half, their, half the year learning about 382. Okay. So um, the government is on shaky ground then if it sells its GM stock. What can it do? Well, first of all, um, with the stimulus bill, uh, a new statute was passed that um, was a, talked about um, the auto companies. And it's the one I've got up here, um, a new section of 382, which says basically that um, if there's an ownership change which is pursuant to a restructuring plan, um, which is required under TARP and will rationalize a manufacturing workforce, then 382 doesn't apply. So actually, that's extra protection saying that GMs purchased by the government doesn't trigger this provision. And this is Congress giving away the money, so that's, that's okay legally at least, even if it's bad policy. Notice that it doesn't help with AIG and Citigroup, they not having a manufacturing workforce. Um, I'm not sure about suppliers. I guess the people who supply them with paper might be helped. Okay, problem though, this is for the restructuring plan. It doesn't apply to any later sale by the US government to the public, which as I said is the main problem for GM. Uh, let's see now, we've already said that that's a, a problem. Um, so we come to uh, the heart of the paper, which is Treasury notices. Since um, the Treasury, now the, the new owner of GM, Citigroup, and AIG, um, would, uh, would like to, as owner now, as opposed to tax collector, keep these tax benefits, it um, has announced various notices saying the law doesn't apply to us. Um, this isn't actually the first of its kind, and it's not just the Obama administration, though. So a little bit of background first. Up on the screen now, I refer to two other notices. The first one was that when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were acquired by the U.S. government, 382 wouldn't apply to them. As I said, that doesn't matter. It won't come up in practice anyway. The second one was highly controversial. It's called the Wells Fargo ruling. It said that banks acquiring an insolvent bank can carry over certain of its losses. And this looked to have a cost of $105 billion to the taxpayer. It's called the Wells Fargo ruling because it benefited Wells Fargo, a certain Wells Fargo deal in particular. They were going to make $26 billion from this interpretation of tax law just on the one deal. The rest of the 105 is what a law firm predicted would be the cost to the Treasury from all the other banks that would later do this. Uh, interesting thing, by the way, the law firm which issued this $105 billion prediction uh, some months later retracted it, saying, oh, this is highly speculative and it's probably way, way smaller than this. But without really explaining very well why, I'm sure there's a good gossipy story behind their retraction maybe having to do with government clients, and I'm looking for gossip on that as well. Okay, uh, anyway, the, um, let's see. I'll keep continue the Wells Fargo ruling, actually. Um, Congress was pretty mad about this because this ruling was issued by the Treasury without really any justification. They just said, hey, we're going to interpret the tax law, Section 382, 
to uh, not apply to uh, banks during big recessions, basically. And Congress pointed out there was no language whatsoever in the tax code allowing the Treasury to do that. And in fact, the Congress in the um, stimulus bill uh, repudiated that notice using what for lawyers is really strong and abusive language, saying Congress finds that the delegation of authority to the Secretary of the Treasury under 382M does not authorize him to provide exemptions or special rules restricted to particular industries or classes of taxpayers. And doing that particular notice was inconsistent with congressional intent, had doubtful legal authority, but then finally they said, since taxpayers should usually be able to rely on what the Secretary of the Treasury says, even if he's Timothy Geithner, um, we will allow what's gone on so far to have this special tax break. It just won't happen in the future. So that was repudiated, um, being, uh, of course, a Bush Treasury Secretary. It wasn't Geithner. It was his predecessor um, being repudiated by a newly Democratic Congress. OK, um, but the notices kept coming. Um, another one, which is significant, another two, because they're significant still during the Bush administration. Oh, five minutes. OK, I can do that. Um, said that uh, if the US government under TARP bought some companies, then the tax limitations, the tax law, wouldn't apply to it. And let's see. The Obama administration continued this. They actually bought the companies. 2010-2 is the last of these. Uh, we can summarize them basically as saying that we won't have um, the shifts of ownership count for any transaction involving the government. So AIG, Citigroup, and um, GM uh, will have much higher public offering prices when the government sells them than they would otherwise. Okay, now the argument for this from policy point of view is maybe not such a bad one. Um, first off, probably for the Cato people and everybody in the room, uh, we probably don't want the government to keep on owning these uh, companies just because they're afraid to have tax laws triggered by selling the stock. So I don't want the government to own these forever either. Um, so that's a pretty good policy argument, I guess. The other policy argument the government would probably make is that the government isn't trafficking in tax losses. It doesn't buy companies to avoid taxes because the government doesn't pay taxes to itself. Or at least it didn't until it bought companies that did. It really does now. Um, but those are pretty feeble arguments because, in fact, we know in equilibrium, since we have 382, any private company that buys another one and loses the tax benefit must not have been doing it for the tax benefit. Everything we observe must be innocent. So why do we punish them by not letting them have the tax benefit? Uh, 3D2, just like many others, is a mechanical rule designed to simplify things, knowing that it will prohibit some good transactions, but being worth it overall. And that rule should apply to the government as much as any else, others. OK, well, so what is the government's arguments? In actuality, they didn't make any, so I can't really say. They just issued this notice and said it was on general authority. Uh, now, to be sure, there is a general doctrine, the Chevron doctrine, saying when the government interprets ambiguous congressional statutes, an executive agency is granted deference by the courts. Um, but that fails to apply here for two reasons. One, there's no ambiguity in the statute. 
there's nothing remotely saying that government ownership is exempt from 382, and the Chevron Doctrine is only triggered by ambiguous um, results, ambiguous language. Second, the Chevron Doctrine is a sensible one, but it really only applies when the government goes through the regular rulemaking process, where the government says, ah, this statute needs some interpretation and some regulations, so here are some proposals. We publish in the Federal Register. You've got 60 days to comment. We'll have hearings. Then we'll publish final regulations, uh, and so forth. Here, um, the government didn't give any reasoning. It didn't allow any public comment. It just slapped up these notices. So they get zero deference from the courts. Problem, though, let's see. Nobody can challenge this in court because nobody has standing. A standard rule in tax is that you can't challenge tax benefits. If the U.S. government says, Eric Rasmussen is a bad person, so he must pay double income tax according to uh, Section 382, I, it, it can issue that regulation. Um, I can then go to court and I will win, and I have standing in court. On the other hand, if the government says, Section 382, properly interpreted, says Eric Rasmussen uh, must pay zero taxes because that is necessary to get out of the recession. In that case, I'm not going to go to court. I'm happy. You might not be happy, but if you go to court, the judge will say, you might very well be right, but where's your injury? And you'll say, well, I'm a taxpayer, and they'll say, not enough, go away. Um, so our policy proposal here, if I have one minute, is that we do give standing to someone. Um, and we suggest saying that any two members of Congress shall have standing to challenge in court uh, uh, any interpretive notices, rules, regulations, or guidelines of the IRS. And if they win, they'll each get $1,000, just so we've got, they've got some skin in the game, which is helpful for having standing, um, plus reasonable compensation for legal fees, which would be a much larger sum. And uh, they can go to district court for this. Uh, we limit it to members of Congress. Uh, not because we like to give them extra thousands of dollars, but because there is a genuine standing problem of giving it to too many people. You can get collusive lawsuits and frivolous lawsuits with that. We might still go with those with Congress, but at least a bit's more, it's a bit more in the public eye. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, first discussant is Frank Buckley, who is pinch hitting for Eric Talley. Could not be here because of uh, illness. So I'm very grateful to uh, Frank for being available at the last minute. Thank you. Great. Um, as Jeff said, I'm pinch hitting. He called me yesterday morning and said that um, while Eric was giving us a really thorough account of Section 382 of the Income Tax Code, he thought there might be perhaps some elements of it which he, he failed to capture. And I said, well, that's probably true. But then I'm as ignorant as a swan when it comes to tax law. And as for bankruptcy, it's true. I taught it for a few years, but I stopped after three years because I realized if I continued, I'd have to learn the law, and that's not why I came to George Mason. So uh, I said I'd talk about something else, which was the constitutional problem. Um, the waiver problem we're describing here, uh, should the president be permitted to waive compliance with the tax code for favored beneficiaries, is similar to the problem that we see with respect to Obamacare waivers. Um, and that's a general constitutional 
Prince problem, which, which goes way back, right? Uh, here's an early example of, of uh, one parliament's view of the problem, the Bill of Rights of 1689. Uh, the Lord's spiritual and temporal and commons do as their ancestors in like cases have usually done for the vindicating and asserting their ancient rights and liberties declare that the pretended power of suspending the laws or the execution of laws by regal authority without the consent of parliament is illegal, right? Um, so I don't know if this happens much in uh, England. I know it does happen in Canada, where I'm from. Uh, there is an American version, by the way, of, of the Bill of Rights, which is Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution. The president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And, and you see the principle from time to time um, with respect to signing statements, for example. But, but waivers are, are a fairly big issue. Well, uh, that's the problem. What is the solution? I said I'm a lawyer. Uh, if a lawyer sees a problem, he automatically assumes that there is a solution. We do not have what Unamuno called the tragic sense of life. If we had worked out Phaedra, things would have ended up much more happily in the end, and the same can be said of the, of the Antigone. Uh, Eric's solution is judicialize it, uh, and Eric adds, but don't bother politicizing it, turning this over to politicians, because he says that's not going to work. Uh, and I'm going to start by saying, I don't think judicializing, I don't think anything which increases litigation is ever a good thing, but certainly not in this case, because what congressional litigation of the kind he proposes would do is it would require a court to decide what is in essence a political question. And here's the problem. Some waivers make sense and some are political payoffs to a favored group and how does one tell the difference? We've seen waivers um, that we might have approved in the past where, for example, compliance with by a state with uh, AFDC in the 90s was waived and we thought that a good thing. Uh, there are other cases involving federalism where states are permitted to go their own way. That's, that's a good thing. As for the bailout, I shouldn't have thought that a court would be able to figure out what is essentially a political issue. And uh, I've given Eric the site in an email. There was a similar case in Canada where firstly, well, it, it involved uh, a tax waiver to the Bromfin family that was moving assets from Canada to the states. The, uh, the value of the waiver was $500 million. Um, this came out in the Auditor's General's report in Canada in 1996. It created a huge stink. In short, it wasn't just a, uh, a fascinating paper by a brilliant academic, which will be splashed all over the newspapers tomorrow. It was a report by the Auditor General, which is the Canadian version of the GAO, which really caused a scandal and had something to do with the fall of government. Um, when this went to court, firstly, interestingly, the courts found, the federal court found that a complainant had standing, just a regular uh, taxpayer who described himself as rather anal about these matters. So he sued successfully, he got standing. But when it eventually substantively got to court, the judge said, what we can't find is evidence of bad faith by the minister. And as such, I'm sorry, Mr. Harris, uh, you lose, although we're going to pay your costs. Uh, so you've got the site to that thing. It's simply not the case that what is, I think, in essence, a political issue should be dealt with by the courts in these cases. But then we get to the 
political solution, and Eric discounts the political solution for two reasons. The first is voter ignorance, and the second is separation of powers. And I'll talk briefly about the former and then get on to the latter. As to voter ignorance, well, look, I don't know about you, but I read about uh, Obamacare waivers just about every day in, in the Drudge Report. Uh, I don't know if I've seen them in the Post. Uh, I ex think I probably have seen them in the Wall Street Journal. I think they're generally known. And then you have uh, things like the Auditor General report. Uh, if that made a stink in one country and not in the other, I think it has something to do with toleration as to abuses in the two kinds of in the, in the two countries in question. But but it's it's not a voter ignorance problem. It's a it's a different kind of problem. Um, separation of powers. Then uh, you'll recall that uh, America adopted the separation of powers as a protection of its liberties, the accumulation of all powers. Said Madison, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, yada yada. The very definition of tyranny, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Um, anecdotal evidence. Um, in the former Soviet Union, some countries became parliamentary, some countries became presidential. Every single one of the presidential countries is now an autocracy. The parliamentary countries remain democracies. Um, there's a fair bit of empirical evidence on this one. It seems to suggest that uh, presidential systems are, uh, the American presidential system was not made for export, right? Um, if it survived as it did wonderfully here, it survived because it was in America and, and not because of Madisonian mechanics. So Let's turn to the other question. Oh, here's something else. This is from a no-name think tank down the street, the Heritage Ranking of Economic Liberties. Uh, and the land of the free comes in as mostly free behind a number of countries, uh, all of which uh, share one or two things in common. Either they are inheritors of the British tradition or they are parliamentary systems like Denmark and, and, uh, and Switzerland. Um, so in short, if, if this was meant to protect our liberties, we have to start wondering about whether or not it's doing such a great job at this particular point. Um, what are some of the problems associated with separation of powers? I'll talk about three of them. Firstly, prolixity. Uh, one thing that strikes one as a lawyer when one moves to this country is the statutes are just, there are just a lot of them, and they're long. You take any statute in England and Canada and compare it to the states, and just 10 times longer over here. Uh, secondly, the coalition of the whole minoritarian misbehavior. This is the Mansur Olson problem, the Jack Murtha problem, and finally, reversibility. So let's deal with them in turn. Prolixity, first of all, as I say, statutes are just a lot longer here. Obamacare is said to be 2,700 pages long. The Canadian Health Act is 14 pages long, and it's bilingual. Okay? Now, I mean, that's a single-payer system, but if you perform this exercise with immigration law or bankruptcy law, you'll find all sorts of little special interest groups, perks buried in American legislation, which you just don't find in other legislation. Uh, why is that? Uh, you know, firstly, one would expect this, in a Madisonian system, if ambition is counteracting ambition, you would expect that Congress would want to tie the hands of the president by drafting in a more lengthy way, and you wouldn't expect to see that in a parliamentary system. 
As well, there's hands tying in the future going on by, because when you toss in reversibility as a problem, if you have a lengthy statute that's hard to reverse, you're tying the hands not only of the president, but also of future Congresses and of future presidents. Why is that a bad thing? Well, it, it sacrifices screening. I mean, I mean, who can make sense? I mean, do, does anybody know what Obamacare is all about even now? I mean, at a certain point, things are so big, you can't just figure them out. And that's, par that's the problem Eric was talking about. Uh, what you're doing is you're sacrificing the benefits of the agency relationship, right? So when we think about agency costs, we think about misbehaving agents, but the agency relationship exists because it's beneficial to delegate. So if you excessively restrict the hands of the agent, you're imposing a different kind of agency cost. Essentially, uh, you're not permitting the benefits of the agency relationship to be fulfilled. Um, okay, prolixity then. Then the coalition of the whole, let me introduce you to Ruth Ann Brasso, member of parliament for Berthier Masquenonger, uh, elected a couple of weeks back in the Canadian general election as an NDP member. <coughs> Ruth Ann uh, was a bartender in a college pub in Ottawa. Uh, she didn't visit the riding during the election campaign. She didn't do it for two reasons. Number one, she didn't speak the language. I mean, she's completely unilingual Anglo. She couldn't speak French. And number two, she had a prearranged trip to Las Vegas. So she went to Las Vegas for the whole campaign. But she was elected with about 60% of the votes in, a, in a, an NDP landslide. The NDP, by the way, essentially corresponds to the modern Democratic Party. Okay? Um, boy, that sounds terrible, right? I mean, what kind of a parliamentary system is that? How much superior is it where we here have people who are really powerful and important, like Jack Murtha? So take your pick, <laughs> all right? Um, I think what I'd like to argue is there's something to be said for Ruth Ann, apart from the fact that she, uh, she is what in Canada is called a babe. I, mean, I don't know if this translates. Um, it's, it works in Quebec. Um, the point is, politics are nationalized in Canada and England. The MP doesn't count for all that much. Trudeau famously described MPs as nobodies, right? He said, you know, outside the parliament, you're a nobody, right? And inside parliament, you're going to do pretty much what I say. It doesn't happen all the time. There are, there are backbencher revolts. Uh, but in general, when there's an election, you're voting on a national basis. What you're not doing is voting for the John Murtha International Airport of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, right? So the Mansur Olson problem doesn't exist in a parliamentary system, okay? It's easier to have people voting for policies for the benefit of the whole country. Um, there's a side issue here I don't really want to talk about much. It, it's been argued that separationism increases lobbying costs. Um, I mean, if, if you know lobbyists, some of them know congressmen, some of them know senators. It's just a little bit harder. The costs go up. Uh, whereas in Canada, it's just a matter of dealing with the movers and the shakers in the prime minister's office. So uh, it's, you know, it's less expensive to do that. Uh, wh wh how this shakes out depends on whether or not you've got a separating or a pooling equilibrium. So if you reduce the costs of dealing with the prime minister's office, you do so both for the interest groups, but also for, you know, national taxpayers' unions and the like. So I'm not quite sure which way it cuts. I, I do know what you don't see is the equivalent of ATLA, whatever it's called today, or the NEA 
in, um, in England or Canada, anywhere like it is here. And interestingly, there's not a heck of a great difference in government spending, at least not anymore. I mean, everybody seems to think, well, you know, at least we don't spend a heck of a, the government doesn't spend a heck of a lot of money. Well, that was true 20 years back. It's less true today, right? Uh, I mean, the U.S. figure is 38.9%, uh, which is a bit lower than the average of, I have some other first world countries here, including some Scandinavian countries. Um, but bear in mind, this is before the bill for Obamacare comes due. So that 38.9% figure is going to go up, right? And those other figures include things like Medicare. You know, the, what people say is, yeah, you know, what, what Americans would say of Europeans is, yeah, but you guys are free riding on our military. And what Europeans will say is, yeah, but you guys aren't spending like we're spending on social welfare. So I don't know if it means anything, but if you take out military spending and social welfare on the right-hand column, it turns out to be pretty much a tie. Right. In any event, the bottom line is that that advantage which America enjoyed with respect to government spending uh, has been largely dissipated over the last, certainly over the last couple of years. Then you've got what is, I think, the crucial problem here, which is one of reversibility. Uh, you want to get an important change done, and leaving aside great communicators like Reagan, it's like trying to get three cherries to line up in Las Vegas. You got to get the presidency, you got to get the Senate, you got to get the House, right? So you have a reversibility problem. And actually, it works both ways. It's harder to pass legislation, it's harder to reverse legislation. So if you want to say this is a good thing or a bad thing, you have to talk about the benefits of pre-enactment screening before a law is passed versus reversibility on the other hand, right? Um, but I want to ask this. I mean, how many bad things has the U.S. avoided? I mean, you, you used to be able to talk about Medicare. I mean, you know, but where is that nowadays? I can also think of a lot of bad things I should like to see reversed here. You know, Dodd-Frank, Sarbanes-Oxley, which don't have a parallel in other countries. Uh, how about the crazy 1965 immigration law? I mean, we all know it would make more sense to bring in highly skilled workers to this country. We know that it would make natives better off, but it's not going to happen, right? I mean, nobody expects it to happen. It's one of those great things, those great immigration deals that keep being pushed back and back and back. Uh, so I think I want to say this on behalf of reversibility. I mean, firstly, we're there already. We need this. But secondly, just as a general matter, um, in a democracy, one tends to want to pass, to enact benign laws. Only what is a benign law is something you only discover typically with the benefit of hindsight. That's where reversibility comes in. 1965 immigration law. Allegedly, nobody thought it would have the effect it had. Certainly, Teddy Kennedy, a big pusher of it, didn't realize that he would have to have an immigration lottery subsequently to bring in the right number of Irishmen to Boston. Right? He couldn't have been thinking that, right? Um, nobody seemed to know what was going to happen. I mean, there are a lot of great examples of reversibility. Another one, of course, is the Civil War, right? It's going to be over in three weeks. You know, well, if we had only, you know, this is like, oh, if I'd only known. But you know better after the fact. That's the advantage of reversibility. Um, here's an interesting little table. Um, you don't have those three cherries lining up, or the need for the three cherries to line up in a parliamentary system. 
So um, this is the ratio of gross federal debt, which includes state and municipal, to GDP. Uh, the OECD, by the way, reports that the ratio right now for the United States is 99%. And it's interesting to compare that 99% figure with other countries, for example, Portugal, admittedly a basket case. So what's, if America's ratio is 99%, what's Portugal's ratio? 99%. Okay. So is this going to be reversed? Well, here's what happened with, uh, that, that's, this is Paul Martin, Prime Minister, well, Minister of Finance initially. So 1995, you know, Newt Gingrich wants to cut spending in the state. Doesn't quite happen, right? Um, there is a reduction in the ratio because GDP goes up. Where you get this amazing reduction is with a liberal government in Ottawa at that time, right? So I guess my question for you is, gee, could that ever happen here? I mean, would you really expect that to happen? What would happen? I'm going to end earlier. So is Eric right? I mean, is it indeed the case that um, poli the political solution won't work? I'll close with one comment. It was suggested to me by a friend, by, uh, by Tom Pangle at the University of Texas. He said, you know, everything you're saying about, and Tom taught in Toronto for many years. So Tom said, you know, everything you're saying about separation of power is befouling the system exa is exactly right. There's one good thing about it. What's really good about it is it breeds contempt for politicians amongst Americans, for politicians and government amongst Americans. And that may be true. My only comment is, if that's true, there's not enough of it. Thank you very much. Uh, second discussion is Effie ben Melik. Thank you very much. So the paper makes uh, two points. The first one is that the Treasury had no legal justification to exempt GM. I'm going to focus in my discussion on GM, even though it does apply to other firms as well, CT and AIG. Um, to exempt uh, GM uh, net operating losses from Section 382, that would basically dictate that um, they should evaporate. Um, so the first point is basically saying that the Treasury gave GM an illegal tax break. And I'm very happy that the first discussion has touched on that. I'm going to talk about the second point, uh, which basically stresses that the Treasury had no economic justification to exempt the net operating losses from Section 382. And in fact, if there was an economic justification, it was a political economy story in which uh, the Treasury transfers wealth to United Auto Workers. Okay, so um, let, let's just uh, maybe allow me to reiterate the critique so we'll be in, on the same page. Um, under the 1986 Tax Reform Act, the ability to carry forward NOL or uh, NOLs, net operating losses, is limited when more than 50% of the stock changes hands over a three years period. Section 363 sale of old GM to new GM allows new GM to acquire the NOLs. You know, by the way, Section 3, there are going to be here several sections. Section 363 is the process in which, in Chapter 11, there is a selling of a firm as a going concern um, um, to another firm. So traditionally, we think about Chapter 11 as a reorganization and, ch and Chapter 7 as a liquidation. Here is a section uh, um, of the bankruptcy code that allows 
the, liquid, the so-called liquidation of a firm within chapter 11. What's the advantages? Well, you don't have to go piecemeal. You can sell it as a going concern. And there is some process of an, of an auction. There wasn't a real auction in this case, but traditionally there is. This is now the, almost the norm in Chapter 11 reorganization. It has been uh, since the late 1990s. So there is nothing wrong about this, and there is nothing new here. Actually, many economists and legal scholars advocate the use of Section 363 as basically moving the traditional debtor-friendly uh, bankruptcy regime of the US to a more liquidation uh, base. So think about TWA, third bankruptcy in 2000, which is known in the jargon of bankruptcy as Chapter 33. Uh, it was basically acquired by American Airlines within Chapter 11 as a liquidation. There was a, a concern there, there that there will be a market glut if you piecemeal liquidate about 200 aircraft, and eventually American Airlines acquired something like 120 aircraft. Uh, I think that the way to resolve the question whether the uh, exemption, exemption from Section 3A to apply here or not is to look into the precedent in the uh, more than 50 cases, large cases of uh, of um, uh, Section 363. These are all firms that were losing money, for sure they had net operating losses, and, and then the, the legal question can be resolved based on uh, case law. However, now that the Treasury owns 61% of GM after the acquisition, selling the shares is likely to trigger the Section 3A2 limit. Didn't trigger it yet, but might trigger it. Furthermore, the exemption from Section 382 leads to overvaluation of GM, which in, which in turn makes the government position in GM better. But in fact, this is going to be a transfer from the Treasury to other shareholders, most notably the United Auto Workers. So here are the numbers from the paper, and, and these are the actual numbers. Following the reorganization, December 2010, new GM had $54.4 billion of stock and about $13 billion in other liabilities. Total is about $67 billion. One of the assets of the new GM is a $18 billion uh, net, uh, net operating losses. This is the book value. The, the, the actual number is way higher, uh, which analysts value at $12 billion in terms of present value. It's actually, as an aside, it is amusing to read the analyst calculation um, how do they come up with this $12 billion calculation, in particular the one by J.P. Morgan that illustrates the, what we call in finance the WAC or the WACC fallacy, which basically means that, uh, you know, to, make it, to keep the story short, they decide to discount it at 8%, at 12% instead of 8%, which is the cost of capital afford, because that uh, GM has more equity than debt. And that's, you know, for sure a violation of Modigliani and Miller, in which what we want to do is to know the risk of the overall entity and then to split it among debt and equity, but that's, that's only an aside. Uh, the number of $12 billion is going to be highly sensitive um, to, uh, of course, the choice of the, uh, of the um, uh, discount factor. In this case, I think that it might be lower, so it, it might be uh, bigger. And especially the horizon, they take an, uh, the analysts here take an horizon of three years. Why three years? Do you actually expect $18 billion in only taxes to be recovered by GM in the next three years? Probably not. Uh, uh, so the numbers can be uh, substantially smaller. If indeed the new GM will lose its $12 billion asset, then its value will be $42.4 billion in stock, plus about $13 billion in liabilities, totaling $55.3 billion. Moreover, moreover, the Treasury is losing taxes. 
Eric just used 18 million dollars. You know, can use the 12 for the 18 million dollars. I'm going to use the 12. And thus, instead of recovering 42 billion dollars, which is the total recovery of the Fed at the time of the reorganization of the Treasury um, on um, loans that total around 50 billion dollars, losing only 15%, which is a modest uh, loss, it's actually going to give it up 12 billion dollars as well, resulting under this calculation in uh, an implicit loss of 40% of its investment. That's um, uh, the argument. So what's the political economy story here? The Treasury actions, exemption from Section 3A2, whether legal or not, increases the value of new GM in which uh, United Auto Workers is a large shareholder. Now, let's see what the United Auto Workers uh, were getting in exchange to unsecured claims of 20, $21 billion. They were getting 17.5% 17, 17 of the stock in new GM, so that's around $10 billion, and for sure, uh, the value of this chunk is going to be highly sensitive to whether the NOLs are going to be there or not. $6.5 billion in preferred stock and $2.5 billion in debt, totaling something like $18.5 billion. It's a, it's a very high recovery for an unsecured creditor. Um, it seems that it would be almost impossible to grant this value to United Auto Workers with the new GM value decline um, if the NOL... Uh, NOL, the net operating losses, cannot be carried forward. So we definitely see here the motivation of the Treasury. If there was such a motivation, there is a case to be made that one would like to have a larger pie to split because one of the uh, uh, slices of the pie are going to an unsecured creditor who is pivotal and crucial for political reasons and for this case as well. Let's try to evaluate the Treasury actions. There is no doubt that United Auto Workers as a junior creditor got a very good deal. More on this comes later. However, without the NOL value, other parties holding equity further reduced. In particular, what is exactly UAW? UAW, UAW is what is now known as the UAW GM VEBA. VEBA stands for Voluntary Employee Beneficiary Association. And that's basically all the accounts that were on the books of GM that were uh, taking into account the benefits and the pensions that have been accrued to um, um, the employees are now going to be put into a different entity. So GM has been cleaned away from these uh, liabilities. And this is, the, this, is the, this is UAW basically holding the equity of, um, of, uh, of a new GM. So VEBA, which is UAW, it's a trust in UAW, receives $10 billion in assets from GM and had additional benefits and pension liability that is between $21 and $27 billion, not easy to estimate. Just as an aside, the level of underfunding in GM-defined uh, benefits pension plan was around $20 billion. So you think about early 09, the market value, equity value of all GM is around 2 or $3 billion the size of the liabilities, of the underfunded liabilities, is about eight times higher than the market value uh, equity-wise of uh, GM. So in order to make here this uh, social welfare analysis in which we evaluate whether the Treasury was trying to um, make money or looks as if it didn't lose enough, we need to do the total welfare analysis. Here is one example. Suppose that the case wouldn't go through because that the NOL uh, would not be carried, carried forward. The value of GM goes down. UAW does not agree to 
to acquire the pensions because they don't get enough. There are some secured creditors in the way that are getting $6 billion. Well, we, have, we are not succeeding in reorganizing GM, and GM goes to liquidation. What's happening in this case? Well, if GM pension plan collapsed, there is this federal entity called PBGC, which stands for the Pension Benefit uh, Guarantee Corporation. If you think about the, what the FDIC is for um, deposit taking institution, PBGC is for uh, private market defined benefits pensions. What happens when a firm files for bankruptcy or when a firm is in distress is that PBGC takes over the pension um, and basically pay them according to, the, to, to some schedule and usually employees don't get exactly what they are entitled to. Um, but PBGC carries uh, deficits as well and PBGC is also part of the different pockets of the, of the treasury. So if the bankruptcy collapses, basically there is no reorganization, PBGC could ha would have picked up part of the tab that is between 20 and $27 billion of uh, deficit. This could have set other pension funds into play. Um, you know, I saw that before Jeff was saying that uh, uh, there was too much light and the lights went off. I'm going to, to talk now about justifying bailouts. I'm not sure what would happen to me. Um, but um, this could have set other pension funds into play. For example, other automakers could have tried to rid themselves of their own defined benefits pension plans. There is some rationale in bailing out United Auto Workers, uh, given that Treasury otherwise picking up the tab for PBGC. I don't want to say that we have to justify bailouts of pensions, but once there is a law under ERISA law, once there is an institution called PBGC that requires the Fed to pay for underfunded pensions, this should be part of the equation as well. So, um, um, one uh, needs to take into account the different hats or pockets of the government um, in the analysis, to, uh, uh, and then the analysis, of course, gets more complex. The point being made that had the transaction failed, eventually the Fed itself would, would be paying for, the, for some of the deficit, let's say half of the deficit, which is around $10 billion, so it's not clear that um, um, foregoing the taxes would be a better option. Foregoing the taxes and then letting the PBGC pay for the pension is better than forgiving the taxes and then avoiding the PBGC to pick up the tab. So what's the issue? Well, you know, one of the issues here that I feel very strongly about, and you know, you, know, you can see it in some of my other research, is the political economy of Chapter 11. There is a problem which is unfortunately bigger in my view than the net operating losses, which is the absolute priority rule violations in this case. The Treasury gave up a secured position, at least on half of its loans, in exchange for debt, preferred, and equity, which is roughly the same as what UAW got for an unsecured position. But the Treasury decided to give up some money uh, for the transaction to go through. The worst case is that among the unsecured creditors, there was another part of bondholders unsecured in the same position as UAW, uh, they were only getting stock, no preferred, and no, uh, and, no, and, and no debt. UAW, United Auto Workers, got a much better deal than the other unsecured creditors. Now, strategic use of Chapter 11 is always being viewed, at least in contract theory, as being efficient ex post. Uh, that's a very efficient reorganization tool exposed because basically in chapter 11, all contracts are off and all contracts that are not 
uh, are not serving their purpose can be, uh, one can get rid of them under some conditions. However, chapter 11 in its strategic form has been abused one again and again. It was abused first by debtors, getting rid of explicit contracts that otherwise couldn't, couldn't have been uh, got rid of, leases or pensions. And if we are concerned about the political use of chapter 11, now we see a government or a federal abuse of the chapter, uh, chapter 11 itself. And in my view, the issue with chapter 11 is that we are too concerned about uh, the horrors of liquidation. In many ways, firms seems to play into that. You think about uh, the airline industry, uh, there was something that looks like a mere coincidence, but on the same day, September 14, 2005, two airlines uh, filed for Chapter 11 protection, um, Delta and Northwest, eventually they also merged. But um, you know, why would they file for Chapter 11 in the same day? Well, they wanted to file to take advantage of um, um, the last moment advantages of the previous Chapter 11 form before it was uh, uh, changed again, but also because that once a firm is in Chapter 11, strategically, and there is a, another large player also in Chapter 11, now it's way easier to renegotiate all the contracts because that the leases have no value there is another, another uh, large player who is not going to take them. There is a, a larger threat to labor. There is a bigger threat to all other contracts that are involved. The reason that um, the Department of Justice or other parties that are involved in bankruptcy do not allow for liquidation is the concern that by liquidation uh, there will be more, par more market power will be left, more market power will be left with some of the existing firms and there will be a glut in the market for assets and for labor. However, the issue with Chapter 11 is that this has been used strategically again and again, first by firms, now we see a strategic use of Chapter 11 by government, and maybe the way to avoid politicizing Chapter 11 would be by elim eliminating it altogether. Thank you very much. Um, Eric, you can respond briefly if you want, and then take the questions from the audience. Okay, well, well very briefly. Um, first of all, Frank, that was impressive. Uh, 24 hours ago, we didn't know he was going to do this, I think. And he didn't even have the uh, benefit of the enforced discipline of a three-hour plane trip to do his comments. Um, like him, um, I don't like giving judges too much power, but I think this is one of the best occasions. Um, my my co-author, Mark Ramsayer, who is in Israel, by the way, on a, a long-planned uh, business trip, said that one thing that's special and, and dangerous for us academics in uh, working on the tax law of reorganizations is there are actually right and wrong answers and you can give your students problem sets and things. So this is exactly the sort of thing you can count on, you can hope that a judge may get right as opposed to something like ruling on abortion or, or education funding or something uh, like that. Um, I won't um, address much more except I would like to ask about the, the pension benefits. Um, there, who actually does pay because the 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 government doesn't fund the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation directly, does it? So most of the revenues of the PBGC are coming from premiums that are being paid by firms. The PBGC, like the FDIC, is now very close to being bankrupt itself, um, given the, the more recent bankruptcies of Delta and others. Uh, loading the PBGC with, um, with um, a pension of, with an obligation of 20 or, let's say, 15, half of the obligation, would need federal, federal funding, otherwise they, the PBGC would go bankrupt as well. But maybe the Republicans would be hard-hearted enough to let it do that. Okay. Questions? Yeah. Andy? 
I think maybe the problem of inviting academic economists to a conference like this is my initial reaction is uh, to step back and say, well, the corporate income tax is the problem. Once you make the government <laughs> an owner, then, yeah, they get involved in workouts in Chapter 11, and it's, that's expected to be messy. Uh, and they're an owner in two ways. They're a contingent you know, owner through the PBGC, and then they're owners through the income tax code. And, and, uh, and that's fundamentally the problem and not the details of what we do in reorganization. So, but maybe that's too highfalutin or airy-fairy, and it's, it's up to the equations that you started with. But that, I must say that's my initial reaction, and that I don't see the logic of eliminating the tax loss carry-forwards. I mean, you asked, are there economists who talk about this? Roger Gordon has talked a lot about um, uh, the implications for entrepreneurship that uh, uh, when you can't carry losses forward, you know, of course, an, uh, early on, an entrepreneur is, is choosing between a corporate form and being subject to personal income taxes. But if you're doing love sweat equity, developing something, uh, you, you are incurring a loss, an economic loss that is imperfect deductibility. So then the government's going to take a slice of that when you start earning profits, but not compensate you for the, what you invested in it. So that's going to just, that's going to be a direct tax on entrepreneurship. So I mean I know for sure there is work of that kind, and it sounds like just canceling canceling tax loss carry forwards as a result of what you think of as a financial event, which would be Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not sure what the economic rationale for that would be. Good point. Oh, I'll I'll ask you about the Gordon sites later. Eric, do you want to call on people, or do you want me to? Oh, I'd like you to actually. Okay, uh, Doug. Thank you. It's an interesting, interesting paper. I guess uh, two things. One, I would agree with uh, uh, Professor Ben Melek that I think if you're going to look at the economic case, you have to look at the wider range of effects. PBGC for sure. And by the way, I've probably written more than anyone in the PBGC. And yes, you're right. It's essentially a mutual insurance fund, but everybody knows the government will rescue it. And it is already broke, except that it's effectively a government corporation. It's got a deficit that's something like $20 billion now. Uh, so you would have to look wider, and that could be more than just the PBGC. It could be no economic knock-on effects that we would have expected at that point if a deal had been unachievable because the NOLs were critical to making it work. Second point I would make is I notice nobody has mentioned the fact that the UAW has a significant business relationship with GM and would with the new GM. There's plenty of precedent in bankruptcies for a party with a continuing business relationship to be treated differently from parties that don't in order to make the newly reorganized company work. Labor for sure, but also frequent flyers always get treated better in a bankruptcy reorganization than other unsecured creditors, even though they have no better claim than anyone else. Uh, customers in general can be treated better. So you, I think you'd have to factor that in as well in looking at whether there was a transfer that was unreasonable. Uh, yes, and in fact, I mentioned um, car warranties. If you bought a car from GM in the past couple of years, you um, aren't out a dime. Your warranty is fully, fully honored. Um, for the indirect effects on uh, economy and so forth, though, that could cut both ways. Um, I haven't looked at it, but if, if we had sold those assets to Toyota, I wouldn't be surprised if we'd get more employment in the auto industry and more value generally for the economy than if we let it remain uh, a union auto shop. So it'd be interesting for somebody to do that, that study, actually. Could well be the government revenues would go up if we let it be liquidated.
Um, Phil? Oh, thanks. Uh, this is a great, a great paper. I, I just want to mention the sentence on page five was really uh, just a great sentence about if um, the government had inserted another $20 billion, then the eventual IPO would have appeared to have been a profit. Mm -hmm. So it's really, uh, it's very, it seems very insightful. Um, uh, that was so one I, of mine, not Mark's. Okay, oh, very good, exactly. <laughs> so he's not here to claim credit. Um, uh, so I, I just I, I once I was on a couple months ago I was on a panel with Steve Ratner who was the auto guy. It's actually Alan Kruger and me and Steve Ratner, uh, Alan Kruger, Steve Ratner, and I were together on a panel. And um, I, I basically asked him these questions about the um, you know rearranging the priorities. He, his answer was basically, look, we did what we had to do. That the ends justified the means. And he said what the judge in the end decided. Now, so I disagree with this. I agree with the comments. Was that the judge says all these bondholders who are actually more senior to the UAW, they got more than they would have gotten had, had you know, the hedge funds been actually stuck with the transmission plant, they would have gotten nothing. And so they got nine or 10 cents, whatever they got, they're better off. And he said that's, so they basically shut up, they should shut up. The federal government was Santa Claus to the unions. That's not the hedge funds business. It was our business and voters can do what we like. So I was kind of open mouthed or slack jawed or whatever, but that was, that was kind of their response. So it was, um, anyways, that's why I, I like the paper, because it kind of sheds light on that. Um, uh, I saw two very small comments. One was on the, um, how the union came to be a creditor in the first place, was the union took over GM's healthcare liabilities, and they took it over at a discount. So in a sense, when they did that, they basically said, look, we're going to take a discount on these liabilities, assuming that at some point, someone's going to come along and write us a big check to make it good. And this was, in some sense, the event that, uh, that did it. So it was quite strategic on their part. Um, the last comment was just on the, the part at the beginning about the Wells Fargo, the, um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the NOLs. And actually, what a Andy Atkinson said it was like word for word what Paulson said in pushing for this uh, ah. change in the tax treatment. It was like word for word. There's no reason why, you know, if it's an asset, it's an asset. And why should we take it away if you merge? And the one comment is that that change was actually in the works for months. Now, it, it did happen to come out at a propitious time for Wells Fargo, you know, and the, so the sort of conspiracy belief is, is totally understandable, but it was in the works uh, for, for months. Um, oh, oh, yes. I, think, I, I don't think it was a, a deal with Wells Fargo. It's, I think it was just uh, the Treasury liking to give lots of money to banks generally, and they probably knew at the start of the year that there'd be a big recession, they'd have to do it, or they'd want to do it. Uh, yes, yes. Um, oh, actually, and I'm glad you brought back. So the previous question, I, I actually don't worry about the bankruptcy priority stuff anyway in the GM case. There's the business judgment kind of rule that there are sound reasons for wanting to cut a sweet deal with UAW to make things work better. And I actually think it's a correct um, analysis which you described the judge making, which is the, the government wanted to spend a lot of money to buy this company, and if they want to give stock as a present to the UAW afterwards, well, that's fine. It's their company now. They can give away bits of it. The transparency is the only problem there. The Chrysler case, which is another paper Mark and I have, is quite different. There we argue that the, um, the junior creditors um, did get a really bad deal um, because the purchase price the government paid for the assets, for the new Chrysler to get the assets, was too low. But I think after that, that's one reason they gave the um, bondholders relatively good deal in the GM case. That 10% of the stock was something I don't think they really had to give them. It was just to, so they wouldn't make trouble with lawsuits. Cliff? I was also wondering, 
a panel with uh, Ratner, but uh, Martin Bailey was on that, that panel. And uh, we, were, we were talking about, this was after, I guess my, my time uh, he was writing his book, you know, so after the bailout, and he, he was sort of rationalized what he was doing. And, and the thrust of my comment was, what's exactly the problem that you're trying to solve? I mean, forget about everything you did. Let's start from the top. What are you trying to do? Tell me, you know, how is this, what you did solving this problem? And is there sort of a reality check that we can now look at the auto industry saying, yeah, that made a lot of sense. And I think Ephraim was really sort of getting at that. And that's sort of the suggestion that I would have, maybe in, in the paper you have it, and I haven't had a chance to read it, but just be very explicit about what's the problem we're trying to solve here from the beginning. And what, you know, what I would suggest is, you know, the way to think about it is, you, you know, we had a shock. The auto industry faced you know, really an unusual shock that they weren't prepared for and arguably wasn't their fault. There are other things we can say about them in terms of the financial crisis. And so all of a sudden, there's you know, a huge drop in demand. And so they're facing the, the, this financial crisis. And the government steps in to provide some sort of form of social insurance in the sense that we need to help them, but largely for society at large because of employment and you know, other repercussions that might have for the macro economy. All right, take that or come up with a different one is the rationale of what they're trying to solve. And then ask yourself, OK, what's the cost minimizing solution to this problem? That, that's really what I think we want to be thinking about in terms of the policy questions. What's the best way to do it? And then go through and, and ask the question, you know, was this kind of transfer the appropriate thing to do? And then, you know, looking at the auto industry, and particularly, you know, the 30 plus years before this all happened, you know, when GM's market share was what it was, and it just sort of, you know, steadily and surely trundled down to what it became, even though they had quotas, even though they had favorable exchange rates and low gas prices, you know, do we really want to be doing this in retrospect and say, yeah, th this was really a socially desirable thing to do? I mean, I have my views on it, but that's obviously important. But, you know, I think so that kind of structure, you know, which is really long, again, what everyone was saying, you know, you think about the same thing with airlines and you wonder, what are we doing, you know, bailing out these, you know, dinosaur carriers? Uh, do we really need them left? Are they doing anything for competition? You know, giving this kind of transfer, is you know the new GM twenty years from now? We're going to say, yeah, this is you know it's good we kept them around. They're they're really in there competing with the Koreans and the Chinese and whatever. Or we could say, oh, you know, they're as bad as they always were. Wow, that's a that's a big question, which gives me lots of scope. Um, first of all, um, this is really a paper about rule of law more than anything else. So what we focus in on is um, what was the law here and um, uh, why was how did the government get around it? So, oh, oh yes, yes. So we'd say no. This was this was totally illegal. Um, it's just that. Uh, in fact, we start the paper if you read over the draft with looking at Holmes' bad bad man theory of law, that the law um, is designed for bad men, those who will not obey without punishment, rather than for good men who obey anyway. So if we say the government can't be sued for um, breaking the tax law, then. Holmes said, well, if you ever get a bad man in government, he'll break the tax law. And indeed, indeed that happens. Um, so we suggest there be something to prevent that. Now, whether the tax law is good or not is a quite separate point. And in fact, you can, if we go way back to Andy's question, we can say, well, the corporate income tax is a bad idea. So anything that reduces the amount of it is probably good for the economy. So uh, we would like the government to grant waivers to everybody. And in fact, if they charged only non- uh, small-sized bribes, or I guess bribes are transfer anyway, that might be good for the economy. If the corporate sector gave the president uh, $50 billion and he ended the corporate income tax and raised uh, personal income taxes instead. 
Um, second thing, though, actually going from rule of law to more economics is um, that transparency is an issue here too, because by being able to break the laws this way, it could be a non-transparent gift to the UAW. So if we're going to have the gifts be um, be there, we'd like for, oh, I guess for, the, for everybody to see what the president is doing, and ideally we'd also like Congress to have to approve the gift from taxpayers to, to the uh, undeserving parties. The third point, though, is actually, well, was it undeserving, or what is the good policy with regard to the auto industry? Well, that gets, well, no, we, actually there's something even before that, which is, uh, even if the auto industry shouldn't be subsidized, will it be disruptive if we help them this way in a second best world rather than a, a different way? If we're going to pay out via the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation or the welfare system, mightn't it be better to pay out via the, um, uh, 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 the tax code? And yeah, actually I'll address that first. I, I've been hoping I would have enough time to digest a Megan McArdle article which said something like, but I didn't digest it, so maybe you're wrong, that if we look at the subsidy, including the tax subsidy, because she had that in the Atlantic or something, then we could have paid each of the auto workers $200,000 instead of doing what we did. That seems like a better way to do this. Uh, then we would also get the assets going into the, um, uh, whoever would bid the most for them in the economy, uh, probably Hyundai or somebody like that, or maybe um, Kia or somebody would want to buy some auto factories on the cheap. Uh, and we would have higher, higher value. So that's probably where I would go with the policy, but that's such a big topic we didn't get into it in this particular paper. So um, Effie, I think, just on this point, and then Justin. So I, I think that that was a great point, and maybe, maybe you know, an hypothetical way to try to distinguish between the different views would be the following. Suppose that with the resolution of GM, uh, the Treasury would announce that they are going to, to establish a sovereign wealth fund and hold the, the equity there for the next four years. Uh, for sure, 61% is, uh, is going to be held for four years. There will be no violation, uh, and there will be a commitment and transparency, and there will be no violation of Section 3A2, and then, and then there will be no problem. I would still think that this is a problematic uh, uh, case, but I think that your view would be that that's fine because there is disclosure, there is trans transparency, and there's no violation of 3A2. For me, this is still a problem because there is an agency problem now. The government can basically try to increase the value of the equity of GM by subsidizing them, by waiving the debt. Um, there is still an issue with the absolute priority violation in bankruptcy. So, uh, you know, would a scenario like this solve the problem that you have? Basically, the government says, you know, we have a sovereign wealth fund, it's about time that we have it, and we are going to hold the equity um, for four years, and it's, you know, you, you can put it into legislation, there will be no violation no legal violation of Section 3A2. That solves the rule of law problem, yeah, but, but not the policy problem, the economic policy problem. Justin? Um, so I had some trouble following. I, as far as I can tell, you seem to be asking three separate questions, or two and a half. So one of them is, you know, did they break the law? And I can understand how a room full of lawyers would be very interested in that. Um, another seems to be, was there a big transfer here? Um, and it seems that for some reason this is a transfer that you don't like. It's less clear why one has a particular view one way or another. It's not that surprising a democratic administration would be involved with a transfer to the unions. I don't think any voter would be surprised by that. Um, another part of this seems to be you worried this was not transparent. Um, on the contrary, I suspect that if you asked any voter whether there had been large transfers to auto workers in Detroit over the past few years, they'd suggest very strongly yes. Um, but the third question, the natural one for economists, was is any of this allocative beyond it just being a transfer? 
And that you seem to have left completely open and it seems to be the important economic question. Oh, uh, well, yes, again, that gets to this last point as to whether there should have been a bailout uh, uh, at all. And I kind of answer these comments I've addressed it. I think probably it was a bad idea. Um, actually, there's another interesting point I didn't bring up, but is, is my stock tip for the day, which is, uh, as I said, the, the government seems really eager to, to resell its stock. So my stock tip is better short GM, because I was just thinking about the, the initial public offering problem. If you have an owner of a company who's really will, eager to get it off his hands, then you have to worry about its value. And if you add that that owner is somebody who controls the Securities Exchange Commission and the Justice Department and could probably delay an investigation to accounting irregularities for a few months, you got to get really worried. Um, so there may be, uh, and yes, I guess that actually would have a, an allocative uh, effect because GM now has incentive to do all kinds of naughty accounting or criminal things uh, knowing that um, the, the owners will be able to get out uh, before the, the bill comes due. The product, uh, pro yeah, um, I don't know, but also we expect things like big discounts now. I actually been haven't been following the industry itself, but they should be wanting to the, the books to look really good for a while. Anyone else? All right, thank you very much to authors and discussants, and there's a reception upstairs where we had the cookies and drinks. Thank you.